All right. Give it. Let's just uh, open in prayer while everybody's coming in. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> the only people that come in are the children. <laughs> Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father that he has done so many things and really when we say that we mean all things so very 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 well father what what did it mean for you to have to serve as judge and execute your son what did that mean to you what did it mean to your son to stay motionless on a on a platform of death I don't know. I don't think I'll ever know. But I sure love you for it. We'd just like to ask you to bless us with your word through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. While we're all gathering in, um, I uh, was talking to Brother Ron, and he was uh, making a point, which I think is appropriate to mention you know, in, in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, don't be drunk with wine. The sister passage, and it's a, we say sister passage because it's actually quite paralleled in construction. In Colossians, it says, and, uh, and the same idea says, and be filled or let the Word of God richly dwell in you, speaking in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so the rule of interpretation, the hermeneutical, hermeneutical rule is really simple. It's a mathematical principle. It's called the transitive principle. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? So for you engineers in the room, that's what he's talking about. So if being filled with the Spirit is associated with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Ephesians, and if uh, being richly filled with the Word of God is equal to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Colossians, if A equals B and B equal or and B equals C, then A and C equal each other, right? These two equal each other. And so uh, the point being very simple is that the primary mechanism of being filled, dominated, ruled by the Spirit of God is the Word of God. Now make no mistake, that, that is paramount in our teaching. And quite honestly, I, I think uh, at least hopefully in our assembly arenas that we still have that as a value. Right? That is a pretty strong value for us to keep, the Word of God. Now remember, it's, it's not like some book of incantations where we go, and boom, you're, you know. It's the Spirit of God taking God's truth and then metabolizing that from the mind and the, and the reception through your senses into the nutrients that feed out through the soul and causes the growth of the fruit. That's how it works. It's, it's that digestive aspect that the Spirit of God does and therefore controls, dominates, has say over the mind, will, and emotion. So very good point our brother Ron was mentioning. Now, what we had talked about was willing submission or loving authority and willing or loving submission, loving surrender. I've used synonyms along the way so that you can have images to the concepts. Now, 
I mentioned to you that this is very important because it, it was not done at the garden, and now we have evidence that this is supposed to be the dynamic and the governing principles of the marital setting, loving authority and willing submission. So you should ask yourselves, well, is this something just for the marital setting, or is it far more reaching than that? And now I'm going to take you and I'm going to show you Christ. And I'm going to show you that this dynamic was a very, very key element when it comes to procuring and, 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 and actually accomplishing the, the, the work of your salvation. And thus it becomes like the fingerprints of God. And whatever he touches, it has these fingerprints of loving authority and loving surrender embedded all over it. All right, so let's look at that. So uh, I, I like to do things in a pictorial way. I just am a picture kind of guy, so that just does me better. So here's an illustration. I do an inverted triangle picture, right? So we have, we have Christ. Oh, come on. There it is. Christ, and he's comparable to the husband. The church is being compared to the wife. The husband is the head of the wife. Christ is also the head of the church. So he's saying Christ is the head of the church. Husband is the head of the wife. Now, at first glance, and in our culture, we would say, well, that's chauvinistic, Right? And I'm going to show you that this is not a chauvinistic concept. What this is, is a pictorial concept. God is using us like we are paints on the palette of eternity, and he's going to use our genders and roles to actually reproduce the original portrait of heaven. All right? Now, let's, let's just follow my logic for a second. Now, obviously... This is uh, uh, obviously this is uh, reflecting the two com com concepts. We said in the last diagram it was Christ and the husband and the church and the wife, but now I've replaced it with the two concepts of loving authority that reflects Christ, and the church is reflecting willing or loving surrender. So I want to make sure we keep that in mind. But let's, uh, let's expand our discussion to another graphic, which I think is very helpful. And this is in 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 3. Now, or, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through verse, roughly verse 15. And, and I think we want to understand a couple of things. This passage is traditionally used to uh, explain the head covering, and it should be. It's a very appropriate concept. But one of the concepts that I think we might not expand as much as we should is the concept that deals with the headship order as a priority of God. Now, please forgive me. I don't mean to say that any of the teachers here have been deficient. I don't mean that at all. I'm just saying I know in my own teaching I've done this. So here's what it says there. The head of every man is Christ. Okay? So that's here in the middle column. Christ is the head of every man. The head of woman is man. Okay, I put that right there. And the head of Christ is God. So what he sets up is a, tri a, a, a three columns uh, that reflect each other, right? Notice, all these on the top row are defined as the head of something. And all these on the bottom row are defined as being underneath that head, right? Do you see it? The mirror picture. That's very important to understand that right off the bat. Now, the second thing that you should notice is this. God the Father is head of Christ. You have to understand that. That's very key. Christ, the God-man, is head over the man. And I'm talking about anthropos, the male. Okay? Man, as a gender, 
is placed as head over the woman. Now, when I say head, don't, don't think of it as top down. Think of it as a position God has established. And so we say head today, it sounds like it's an authoritative abuse of power. Now, we're not talking about that. The loving authority is on the top row. The loving surrender is on the bottom row. All right, so here's, here's, here's how it plays out in that graphic then. That loving authority and willing submission have each its characters. Now, why is this important? It's important because in order for your salvation to be satisfied, somebody has to be authoritative, the law. And yet, if you don't have the law, if you don't have grace, then what happens? Then it's a sterile place of execution, the stainless steel of the blade of Abraham, right? But if you have loving in there, then what you're going to do is you're going to take and do whatever is necessary to legitimately satisfy the authority side of the judicial system and yet do so by preserving life, right? So this is what God does. And as a loving authority, he has his son become willingly submissive. And he does it voluntarily, right? And he does so in a manner that will pay for your salvation. If Christ was not willingly or lovingly surrendered to his Father, how will your sin be paid for? What if he was saying, I'll do it, but I don't want to. What if that was the remarks in the Garden of Gethsemane? Would your sin be paid for? Ask yourself the question. There is no other dynamic between the Godhead that that could happen in order for your redemption to occur unless it was this one. Did you see that? If God was only authority and not loving, I don't think our sin would be paid for. If he was only willing but not submissive, I don't think our sin would be paid for. Whatever grid or word you want to ax off, it takes all of it. And both individuals of the Godhead are intimately involved in this whole process. So when you talk about loving and author- loving authority and loving surrender, it's just not some concept that Holtheiser made up in the back room in Pennsylvania. This is actually the dynamic that seals the deal on your redemption. It's got to be this way. All right, prove it, Steve. Thank you, I will. Loving authority, willing submission. Turn to these. Now, I tell you, you don't have to turn to these. I'll quote them to you, okay? Baptism of John, or John is baptizing in Aeon, right? By the way, have you ever been to Israel? That's right, because you're going next February. Just thought I'd put that in there. We like to go to Israel every couple of years. Lord willing, we'll go in February 13th of next year. It'll be about an 11-day trip. You're welcome to come uh, and, and check it out. It's, it's, it's lovely. It'll be, I don't know, my fifth or sixth time and. And the guys that come with me, we, we just do the Bible. Right? <laughs> you know, I'm not taking you to learn about, you know, Pompeii. I'm going to take you to learn about the Bible. So uh, uh, Mount of Trans- or the, the baptism will we'll go near a place where John baptized. It's really kind of creepy because um, it's a tourist attraction, and it's on the Jordan River. Now, um, back, you're from Illinois. Back in our regions of the, of the area, we had the muddy Mississippi, okay? And that's what the Jordan looks like. It looks like a sewage creek, okay? And so they got this huge, 
a little get up there and, and you go in this big white building and everybody on, on the planet wants to be baptized there. And it's creepy, all right? You, you, you rent this white gown and, and, and you know when linen white gets wet, it sticks to your body. It is not a pretty sight, okay? So I don't take you there. You know where I take you? We go up to this deserted campground up north a little bit because it looks like a place where no one would go. And that's where we teach this, right? Now, what happened there? Well, what happened was John the baptizer was making some... He was actually the most popular sort of rabbi-ish guy around. Remember, everybody went to John. And the Lord Jesus was not... He was new on the scene, publicly speaking. And so... uh, And primarily because the Spirit of God in the dove form hadn't descended upon him in that graphic way, right? And so what happened was he meets up with John and John, I can't baptize you. He says, oh, no, you need to baptize me. And so when that happens... The, the Spirit of God descends upon him in the form of a dove, which is, of course, why we use that image as a symbol of the Spirit of God in the Scriptures, or one of the reasons. And, uh, and when that happened, there's this voice that was, that was speaking. There's a voice of God that speaks only several times in Scripture in that loud, audible way, but this was one of them, and it said this. The voice said, This is my beloved Son, and whom I'm well pleased. Do you remember that? It's a very famous quote. What does that mean, beloved? It means this, loving authority. Where's the loving? He used the word beloved. Where's the authority? Where do we get that concept? He called him his son. huh? Father, son. That's the authority part. Now, the same thing happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's a great story. Nobody really knows where it occurred. Some people think it's on the top, top of Mount... Um, Tabor, right? Mount Tabor is this, it's in northern uh, Israel, and you got the plain of Jezreel, and suddenly you get this mountain out of nowhere. And it's not very tall, but it's fun to go up because the roads are switchbacks, and you get in these buses where you cram like 35 people in, in a minivan, and, and you go riding up at a lot of speed up this hill. And, you know, you're pretty sure you're going to lose your life as you look over the edge, and you get up there, and of course, on the top of that mountain, what do you think they have there? A church. And this church was built by some famous guy. I can't remember his name. And, and it's built in three segments. And there's one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for the Lord. Just the very thing that he said not to do, right? Right Now, it's ironic that they would choose that. That was the, the whichever religious group chose that as a site. And we go in there and we kind of go, ooh, and all, and then we get out. But it's, uh, Mount Tabor is more famous for the uh, judges' days rather than the Mount of Transfiguration. But uh, uh, I like to go to the base of Mount Hermon. Uh, Excuse me, the base of um, Caesarea Philippi. Is that Hermon? Hermon's the tallest one in Israel, right? My mind is weak now. That mountain, Mount Hermon. And so at the base of of that mountain is Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was... uh, built by um, the governor, the king of that region, and he built it, uh, Philip built it as an honor to Caesar. And so it's very Roman-esque. And even today, there's lots of Roman ruins and even miniature aqueducts like Venice would have. It'd have those miniature aqueducts that you could run around in. It's kind of cool. But against the base of the mountain, there's a spring. See, all the snow melts from the top of Mount Hermon into the rocks and crevices and then bubbles back up, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
And so over the years, even in the days of Alexander the Great, they would build temples there. And back in Alexander the Great, they, they called the god at that time god, the god of Pan, not Peter Pan, but Pan, kind of a goat-like dude. And so, and so what happened was they would have that. Now, Romans sort of inherited the Greek um, culturish thinking of Alexander the Great. And so they had, if you, uh, the, the ruins there today, they had big colonnades and columns jettisoning out from the base of the mountain and the spring in the back. And here's what you'd do. You'd take uh, a human sacrifice and you'd throw them into the spring and they would go down and out. And if there was blood that was seen, then the God was not happy with the sacrifice. But if there was no blood, then obviously the God received the sacrifice, Right. And that was the thing. That's the pagan idolatry there. Um, uh, personally, it means the poor victim did not have a head wound or something, but that doesn't matter. And so you'd had several of these. If this is the base of the mountain, you'd have where the big spring was here, and then next to it you'd have another temple and another temple and another t- all the, up the road. Now, the Lord Jesus, he took his disciples there when he asked the question, who do men say that I am? Now, when we stand there, you have to understand, we're standing usually about 300 meters away, and we're looking at all this, and it's kind of picturesque. And when we stand there, and, and, and you know, I, if I'm teaching, I'll say, and so the Lord asks this question, and you're the audience, and you're looking at the mountain. Who do you say that I am? What's being inferred is he's saying, who do you say that I am? Am I like one of those gods? Isn't that cool? I know. You've got to go. It's really fun. Anyway, one of those gods, am I like that? And, of course... They answer not according to the pagan idolatry that was in the background of the visual setting. They answer, he, they answer according to their Jewish thinking because he, they, they know he's far superior than any pagan idolatry. But that was the setting of this. It really lifts it off the page, doesn't it? Glad you're going to go, right, Ken? Good deal. Okay, so he, they say, no, this is, this is a, 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 you're, you're, you know, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah and all the prophets. And so they refer to their, their knowledge base of, of, of being raised in the synagogues. And he says this, but who do you say that I am? And I just love Peter. We, he talks a lot and talks first. But generally he's saying the right thing. Not always, but generally. We are Christ, the son of the living God. I can just hear everybody go, oh, he said it. You know? And the Lord Jesus says, that's right. And, my, and the Father has shown this to you. Next thing the Lord Jesus does, he says, now this is what's going to happen. The same setting. I'm going to be taken by the, the Jewish re- religious rite that you just described. I'm going to be taken by the pagan Romans behind me. And they're going to crucify me. And I'm going to be buried. And I'm going to rise again. Peter comes up to him a few minutes later. And he says, hey, um, can I talk to you about something? I wish you wouldn't say all that stuff because that's kind of freaking us out. That, that's a loose translation. Okay. It's just kind of freaking us out. So can you, can you kind of tone it down a little bit? Here's the Lord Jesus. This is his definition of toning it down. Get thee behind me, Satan. Just try that sometime in the assembly. Okay. That'll go really well. Right? Yeah, Aaron's going, oh, Steve, stop, stop. You're all causing too much trouble. No, I'm serious. That was the situation, right? And so after that, he says, now, some of you, will see my kingdom coming, my glory. And then the very next verse in chapter 17 says, and eight days later, the Lord Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to where? The Mount of Transfigure. He doesn't list the mountain, but they are already at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Tabor is at least a day's walk away. 
Now I say, well, it was eight days. I could have made it. There was a Roman garrison on top of Mount Tabor. I doubt if they went there. You know what was on top of Mount Hermon? Snow. All right? So they go up there, and this, you know the event. Now this so galvanized Peter that he writes about it in his, I think it was Second Peter. Remember when he's saying, we did not follow cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses, and he cites this event. Out of all the things Peter could have written about as, as evidence of the veracity of what he saw and heard, he cites the Mount Transfiguration. I would have cited walking on the water. That's, a, that's really big. Okay, he cites the Mount of Transfiguration and he says, when we were there, we, we saw the Lord and he was transformed as uh, I was listening to Mark Hartley. He was our meeting Wednesday night. It's like he just undid his, his human veil for a minute and just, just let his glory shine for a second. And they were petrified. And that, of course, Peter says, oh, this is fantastic. We, we should, you know, build booths for you, you and you. And then the, he transformed in front of us and the majestic cloud. He talks about this. That cloud came over us when we heard the majestic voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, Peter quotes that part. One of the authors and the gospel writers also adds this phrase. You listen to him. He conveniently left that part out of the first, the second Peter. I would have too. You know, that would have been the embarrassing part. But here's what he says. I love my son. That's the loving part. What's the authority part? Hear you him. That's the authority statement. All right? So my point is, is that, that God the Father clearly is being established as one who loves the Son in an authoritative man, with, with authority. John 3.35. Turn to that one. Oh, no, my battery's going down. John 3.35 says this. The Father loves the Son. I'm not a rocket scientist, but I'm pretty sure there's no other way I can actually interpret that. Now, I see the love part. Where's the authority? Notice the titles. Father, Son. That's the authority statement. Huh? My point is this. Loving authority was exactly between the Father and the Son. Now, what about the willing submission part? Glad you asked. Look at chapter 5, verse 30. Look at this one. This is all in John. This is fantastic how he outlines this for us. Chapter 5, verse 30. Oops. Chapter 5, Steve. Thank you very much. It goes like this. Um, I can do nothing. Of, I, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous. Here it is. Because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. Okay, what's that? Listen, look at the components. He says, I don't seek my own will. I, and he says, I, I do the will of the one who sent me. That's submission or surrender. Where's the willing part? The willing part is, he says, I do it of my own accord. I make this decision on my own. That's not the only spot. I listed several places. Turn over to chapter 6 and verse 38. That one even, even, has even more brilliance to it. It says this, um, I have come down, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given to me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Notice 
Notice the submission part. And it says here in, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, that's the temptation part. He's talking about there how you know, everything uh, uh, that should worship the Father, right? It, the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he say there? Nevertheless, thy will be done. If this cup cannot pass from me, nevertheless, thy will be done. Willing submission. And we have that classic uh, passage in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but took the form. And what's the next phrase? Do you remember that? Form of man or form of a bondservant? Which one's correct? Form of what? What do you think, Dave? Bondservant. Right. That's incongruous in my thinking. I mean, the, the, the difference is God versus man, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, I was in the form of God. That is, whatever makes up the concept of God, I was it. But I decided to take the form, not of man, but of a slave. You see the difference? See, there are many slaves in life. There's an animal that can be your slave. You ever see a seeing eye dog? Slave, right? A horse? Your slave. But he says, I'm going to take the position in the Roman culture that you know of as the lowest position of all people, and I'm going to take that place. That's the, that's the hallmark of what it means to be submissive in the Greek and Roman mindset. And he says, that's the thing I'll do then in that place, in that position, I'll assume the form of a man so that as a man, I will do what no man would ever do and I will be willingly submissive to the point of death. Most of the slaves of the Roman era died violently resistant. Right? The thief, on the, the thief Barabbas who was replaced, why was he going to be crucified? Because he was... It says he, re, he was a rebeller and instigator against the courts or against the regime of Rome. That, that, was, that was why the thief was ki- going to be killed. The Lord Jesus wasn't any of those things. He did it willingly. Now, here is the whole idea in this form again. So we have God the Father and Christ, Christ man and man woman. And, and of course, our, our famous statement about headship of uh, uh, the, the headship verse, loving authority and willing submission. But now, here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see, that now each of these are reflective of this, right? God the Father, God the Son, loving authority. Okay, so we're going to now do it this way. We're going to have Christ as loving authority and man as willingly submissive, right? Because it was man, Adam, who refused to obey the word of the Lord. He even points it out, and you obeyed the voice of your wife when I told you to not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. He just names it by, by letter even of what I said not to do and you chose to disobey. You knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. That's the motif. That's the the, the mindset of man, I will do which is contrary to you even though I know it's right or excuse me, even though I know it's wrong. And so what Christ does is he comes and he knows everything that's righteous. The law of God is written in his heart and he then does what man, Adam, the first Adam, should have done. And he then takes that rightful place and he's saying, now I want you to do what I've already done. You reflect me. All right, you see that? And then this dynamic gets shown up here. And he says, this is so special 
This right here is so fantastic. I want everybody to see it. And I'm going to use anything and everything to explain it. And I'm going to use genders to do it. And I'm going to use um, uh, 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 families to do it. And I'm going to use marriages to do that. And I'm going to use assemblies to do that. And I'm going to use civil authority to do that because this dynamic is exactly what it was about. And this is what was attacked by Satan. And this is what was put on, on uh, 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 in, in a uh, jaundiced eye. Well, let me show you. I'll do it right in my son. And I want you to follow suit. You see why it's important? Such a big one. And that verse that we started out with was, was uh, uh, the, the quote of the officiating marriage, the two shall become one flesh, shows up in this passage of reestablishing the right order, okay? Now, I'm going to ask you this. How many times does Christ's name appear on the chart? It's not hard. It's not your question. Two. He appears one who learned, if I may, he was willingly submissive. And he is in the place of loving authority. So he represents... uh, he shows the equivalence to God the Father in his loving authority. How many times does the title man appear on the chart? Twice. Notice how we are a perfect mirror of what Christ did. Now, I'm going to be very blunt with you men. You know, we have double the responsibility, don't we? We have to be willingly surrendered to Jesus Christ. And in that state, like the Savior, you have to then show loving authority. Men, do you get it? Do you understand that it was our deal when we rebelled against God? And God called us out on that. And Paul picked up on it and he requotes it and restates it in 1 Timothy. It's our deal And thus, when he, the man, the perfect man, comes and he does all things perfectly and we are to represent him, we have got to, with no no excuses, be willingly submissive, lovingly submissive under the authority of Jesus Christ and therefore exercise commensurate and complementary loving authority uh, over the woman or of the family or of the workplace. So here's the hard one. If you or I live our lives in a way that only gives him part of the throne, you are failing in the first part of the equation. And it will never, it will never equal to the appropriate representation into the second part of the equation. I live most of my life by giving the Lord 90% of the throne. 90%, 90%, that's pretty good. Who would, who would want 90%? I'd like 90%. That's almost an A. But let me tell you something. That 10%, I want it. It's only 10. But I want my 10. You ever say that? I'm not asking much, honey. I only want this much. But that's mine. That's mine. It's really obvious when we share desserts, right? How much can I have? Oh, you can have up to this point. You know, you take the smallest sliver. Well, can I have a bite of that small? No, no, that's mine. You know, we do that. You see it? That's how we treat God. And men, I am telling you that most of our lives 
will be spent learning and relearning this one thing. But when that happens, now you have a great understanding and, if I may, qualification to provide loving authority. Do not miss our responsibility, brothers. It is so huge in the economy of God. This is what Satan attacks. He attacks here so that we're all messed up in where, how our original approach. Question, who is the head of your home, men? Is it you? I would submit to you that the head of your home is this person right here. Right? Can I tell you a story? Yeah, of course, you're going to let me tell a story because there's nothing you can do about it. I'm not a builder. I am a builder wannabe. I do. I'd love, I'd love to build things. You know, I'd like to drive nails and have the plans, and I'd like to see it come about. So we, we built this house, and you know who built the house? Our builder. But the basement was unfinished. So guess what I thought I could do, um, dreamed I could do? Finish the basement. So I'm smart. I got out my architectural design software. I didn't know how to use it. And so I came up with this plan. Actually, it was kind of a good plan. I stole it from somebody. And so, and so we, we put it together, and I went to my wife, and I said, I'm going to finish the basement. What do you think? Now, when I ask that kind of question, I'm really not wanting to know what she thinks. I'm really wanting her approval. Men, do we do that? Not you, Dave. Of course not. And so, and so I, I, I said, uh, I, I think I can finish the basement. And she says to me, are you sure? Now, men, you single guys here, when the woman asks a question like that, it's not meant to be answered. It's meant to be contemplated. And the contemplation should unravel in this way. Maybe it's not such a good idea. And that's what I didn't think. I answered the question like this. Of course I'm sure. Right? <laughs> Did you do this before? It's, I've done this is my wife, such a godly woman. She, she is living right here. She goes, let's do this, Steve. Let's pray about it. We'll, I'll pray about it and you pray about it. And let's come back in one week. And if God wants you to finish the basement after your season of prayer, then I will support you. Well, so that's my ticket. I go, okay. So... Ask me, how many times did I pray about it that week? Just go ahead, ask me. Let me show you. <coughs> okay, that many times, okay? So we come back together next week on our date night, and we go out. She goes, well, I've been praying about it, and I think you have too. Oh, yeah, sure, honey. And, uh, and she says, well, what do you think? I said, well, I think God wants me to finish the basement. She goes, then I'll support you. Two weeks into the project, I'm spending every hour of my life in the dungeon. I'm working on a half stud wall. I can't even get it to look straight. And I'm like sweating, you know, something that you carpenters could do in like 10 seconds, 10, 20 hours, and it's only 20 feet long. And I, and I, get, I finally get roughed in. 20% of the basement, I come upstairs and I go, I think I'm over my head. At that moment, she could have done what we all do. 
You come to that conclusion on yourself, oh great one? She could have done that. Nothing. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. How can I help you? I don't know. I, I think I need help. She goes, you know, I've been praying about that. And I went ahead and got a couple of builders that you might want to call. There you go. Now, she could have rubbed my nose in the dirt, couldn't she? And the next time, you might want to listen to the wiser one here. And she could have done that. Never, even to this day, she will never speak of that situation as if I was the idiot that I was. You know what we call that? That's loving surrender. What did I do? It wasn't on the board. (laughs) It was like some doofus with an authority concept that made no sense. Right? That's my illustration. Now, by the grace of God, we worked through it, and the basement was finished, and it was really quite nice, better than I would have ever done. But what I learned was that this makes a difference. And who taught it to me? The most godly person of our marriage, my wife. Hmm? See that? That is so extraordinary. Now, let me show you how this shows up in every facet of our existence. Loving authority and willing submission. All these are from the scriptures, right? It's between the principle is shown between the Father and the Son, right? That's uh, the first thing that we established out of 1 Corinthians 11 right here. And then we find it in between in the man, between Christ and the man, the, the, this particular gender person. We find it, uh, excuse me, in this particular relationship. Then we find it between the man and the woman and the gender side. It shows up in the marital side as we're studying right now in Ephesians chapter 5. It'll show up in the workplace with the boss and the worker in those passages that talks about the masters and the slaves. It shows up in the government, or excuse me, in the family between the parent and the child. It shows up in the church between the elder and the saint. And it shows up, of course, in the government setting in the civil life. Now listen. There is not a single component of your existence in which this principle does not directly affect. Do you agree? That's how important this is to the heart of God. He makes it part of everything. That's why I go back to it. This is what was attacked. This was what the enemy was trying to undo. This was the curse thing, right? That, okay, if that's how you want it, we'll put it this way. And now we get to the New Testament. And now we have the penalty and power of sin vanquished. And now we have, for once, out of all human history, we actually have the potential to reverse the curse and live it out not just in a marriage setting, but in every single theologically, gender, maritally, workplace, family, civilly, church life. And that's why we do that. This is why we work to preserve the structure of authority and the assembly. You think it's because a bunch of guys just want to have control over you? Do you really think that? No. This is why we do it that way. This is why we teach our children to obey. Just think it's because I'm on a power trip? Well, that's probably true. But the point is, is that it's, it's reflecting this whole dynamic. Oh, saints, this is something we're just blowing past us. And we're just thinking it's a thing that we do on the list of Christianity. It's embedded so deeply, it's on the fingerprints of God. And he wants it that way. He made it that way. That's why 
this spiritual concept will not be manifested unless the Spirit of God fills you. Because I do not naturally think like this. Huh? When's the last time your boss had a word of criticism towards you? That went well, didn't it? You know, you want to do things like slash their tires. Those things happen, right? See, that's my natural bent to buck against that. But this, this is exactly what pulsates through the arteries of the soul of God, if I may. Now, I say this with great conviction because out of all the assembly problems I heard of in the last 10 years, especially in the last three years, there is almost, without exception, something that tries to trample this concept. You you can challenge me on that. Do your own research. Prove me wrong. But there is almost never a marital problem in which this concept is not being trampled. There is almost not a single family problem in which this concept is is not being honored. Do you see that, how important it is? So when he talks about headship this and headship that, it is not some chauvinistic idea that Paul concocted while he was in prison in, in, in some city in the Middle East. It's right out of the palms of God's hands. That's why it's important. Now, here's the thing about head covering. You know that passage, right? This is what he's referring to. This right here. It shows the order. I'm going to use men and women to do that, Right? in their roles in the assembly, combining the two, and in your life in the assembly, I'm going to use the head covering to also depict it. Now, I don't ask God what color of paints he uses. He picks them because, as you know, he's the creator. He owns it. He can do what he wants, right? He can use whatever paint on the wall he wants. And he says, I'm going to use genders to do this. I'm going to use roles to do this. So we're going to have male leadership and, 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 and loving authority. And we're going to have uh, uh, males uh, teaching in the assembly. That's what this is reflecting. It's not some contorted, chauvinistic idea of Paul the weirdo. That's what, that's what the liberals say about us, right? I'm telling you, this is where it comes from, and it makes so much sense. And this is why we, it's also the passage that defines the head covering. Now, I have to tell you, my favorite thing about the head covering is the glory thing, right? All right, so the glory thing is pretty simple. Think of it this way. Ladies, if you are invited to the grand ball of, the, of England, and the queen is there, and you go in, and you have the exact same Talbot's dress that she has on, what are you going to do? You're going to go, <gasps> and then you're going to ask your husband for his coat. Why? Because you're competing on the, from the attention of the queen by your outfit because actually you look better than her. And so you're going to cover it up so that no one will see you and everyone will see the queen. You see that? That's a glory issue. And that's what happens in the assembly when all the angelic hosts are watching and they for once want to see if we actually understand this whole concept. When it says for a symbol of authority, that's not a symbol for, for to show you that I'm in charge of you. That's to show the angels that we get it. 
That's what that's about. Remember, Satan was an angelic being who rebelled against the authority of God. They're getting the lesson by, by, by understanding authority through us. That's what that's about. But the glory thing is even bigger. The glory thing is where uh, uh, I am the glory of God. I didn't ask for it. That's what he said it was. And you are the glory of man. That's really true too. Do you see any? Even the world gets it. Does the world have beauty contests for men? Oh, yeah, Mr. Universe. And, yeah, they're sick. Okay? We have women beauty contests because that's our glory. We see their glory, right? We look at that. That's, that's the glory of things. And so he's saying, now you cover your glory, oh man. And, it's, and you're glorious, ladies. You're definitely glorious. But you cover that so that there's only one glory that can be seen. Just like you're in the palace of England. That's what you would do on an earthly level. Why wouldn't we do that on a heavenly level? I don't know. Maybe we just don't understand. To me, this is a portrait. Do you like Thomas Kincaid? Yeah, I like Thomas Kincaid, the, the, the artist of lights, you know, and he has these beautiful things, calendars, all this stuff. I believe he's a believer. And, um, you know, I, I don't own an original Thomas Kincaid. You know what I own? A copy. And I'm proud of that copy. I framed it. I put it in my fireplace and it's you come over I say hey you like my picture oh that's a great picture I love the lights on that yeah it's an original copy (laughs) and you go oh that's nice alright you know what we are we are original copies of the real thing and for some reason we are unappreciative of the divinely authorized copy The author himself signed off that this is an authentic copy and it's reproducible under my authority and we do not seem to think that's special. Something's wrong with us. Isn't it? That's why this is important to me. All right, let's move on. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we want to go. I want to apologize to you because... My iPad ran out of battery, so we're having to switch devices. That's why I always bring four or five of them, not just because I'm a geek. All right. Now, the concepts that I described for you, we've got a few minutes left, brother, so don't panic yet, are, are also woven in this sister passage. And this is kind of an important one. And I'm going to show you as we read through it how these principles show up. Remember, loving authority, loving surrender. Likewise, wives. Now, the context was being submissive to those who are cruel to you in the workplace and treat you uh, poorly even though you don't deserve it. And so he gets to chapter 2, and he then describes Christ. Christ did this, you know, he was reviled and did not return reviling in return. Or he, when he was reviled, he did not return, revile in return. When he was uh, insulted, he didn't return insult for insult, but he submitted to him himself, to him who judges righteously. And so then he says, in that concept of loving authority and willing submission, he says, likewise, likewise you wives do the same. Now here's your scenario. Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some... Do not obey, and the definite article is there, the word. So in other words, they seem to be unbelievers, but you can apply it to those who are Christians and don't obey the word, like Janet's husband who thought he could finish the basement. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Do you see that? 
In other words, when you display this in the manner that bespeaks of the submission of Christ to his Father, you actually preach, but no words are spoken. Your demeanor has the greater megaphone than the strength of your rationale and the strength and intensity of your personal voice. You can win them without a word. That's, incre- that's impressive. But let me tell you something, ladies. When a man watches your Christianity and they're convicted by it, we don't forget it. Because we know you're doing exactly what the Lord would have me do. Right? You agree with me, Brother Aaron? My goodness, my wife is a living version of the New Testament. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, that's what Peter's saying. Another author, same idea. Do not let, this is why he uses this verse, do not let your adorning be external. That means external only. Braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry jewelry or clothing you wear. Now that does not mean, please keep this in balance. That does not mean that you don't get ready for Sunday morning meeting or when you're going to go out. It's not one of those statements. He's making the contrast. And he's saying, don't let it be only to this side of things. Recognize that there's an inner beauty, an inner beauty that God values, an inner beauty that speaks without words, an inner beauty that reflects loving authority and willing submission. Don't forget that one. But let your adorning be of the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of, of a gentle. That means meek and quiet spirit. What does that mean? That you don't talk? No. Meek. You know what, word, what the word meek means? Meek means, according to Dr. Vine, it's strength under control. It means that you have such a confidence in God that he will make the situation right no matter how negative it is that you do not have to use your strength to right the situation. You can wait for God to use his strength to right the situation. Right? I was sued twice in my career, and I'll never forget God teaching me about meekness. And you know what you do in a lawsuit is you go to the deposition. They ask you a thousand gazillion questions, and you answer, and then you go to trial, and you defend yourself, and you use the strength of your wisdom and your poise and your presentation and your knowledge to solve the issues and show the jury the right conclusion, right? And I was, I was just so upset. I would be sued and I, I had all these arguments to give. And my attorney said in a very polite way, Dr. Price, if you think you're going to go in and present your great arguments and win, you're really mistaken. They're just going to use that information against you. You're going to have to follow my lead. And I said, oh, I want Adam. Let me have Adam. Let me use my stuff. I said, Dr. Price, you're going to have to calm down. I said, I am calm. <laughs> and then I went to the Word of God. Here's the Lord Jesus. He wrote the law. He lived the law. He knew it backwards and forwards, both as God and as a Jewish boy raised in the synagogue. And here he is before the Sanhedrin, and he's watching the priest tear his clothes. He's watching the mockery trial without two witnesses. And there's at least seven or eight laws violated in John 18. And he's watching it all. And here he wrote the thing. And what did he say? Nothing. Huh? And I felt the Lord was saying, you'd be like that. You, let, you trust me and entrust the situation to me, and I will speak for you. You watch and let your strength be under my control. Ladies, that's what they're saying. The beauty of this is that you are taking the strength, and you've got some great wisdom. You've got some insights that I have to confess are much more brilliant than the men's. You know, I work in medicine, right, or did, and I work with gazillions of lady doctors, and I want you to know something. 
You're smarter than the guys. You really are. I've seen it so many times, right? I, I, when, I'm working on, when I was working on shift with other female doctors, I'd ask them. They'd say, hey, what do you think about it? And they'd always say, oh, I remember this. And I'd, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It's not about not having the ability. It's you're taking these strong abilities and you're bringing them into a loving surrender role to the husband, right? No, to the Lord Jesus. Look at what it says. Which is God, and which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women uh, who hoped in God used to make themselves look beautiful, adorn themselves. How was that? By submitting to their own husbands, uh, uh, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Nah, I skipped this part. For this is how the holy men who hoped in God. See that? Who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Submitting to their own husbands. Sarah calling him Lord and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What does that mean? You are trusting the Lord to redirect that situation or undo the situation so that you can actually participate in it in a manner that bespeaks the fragrance of the Lord Jesus Christ on that triangular diagram. That's what he's talking about. Peter is saying the same thing. Now, let's talk about some extremes for a minute. The principle, I think, is there. Peter is reiterating it, but obviously we do have other jurisdictions, right? So it's a jurisdiction of the family, of the marriage, right, of the marriage jurisdiction. But if one of the, if the husband becomes physically abusive, something of that nature, we'll say, then what happens is he has now put himself underneath another jurisdiction. You know what jurisdiction that is? The law, the civil authority. Because in this country, you hit somebody, you're done, right? Okay? So I want you to know that I believe the principle but I also think there are other aspects of the truth that has to be considered in these extreme situations when there is obviously great sin. And there is an abusive situation, for example. And I think that the lady is obligated to remove herself from the situation for her safety, but also for the safety of the children. And if she does not, the law will come back to her and say, why didn't you take the children out of there? You knew they were in danger, right? So she is also under this other jurisdiction, correct? And so that's how you manage it. It's not because her heart is saying, ha ha, I'm going to get even with you now, buddy. But under the authority of these different jurisdictions God has set up, you match yourself in obedience to each jurisdiction, and sometimes that will unravel that situation at home. But I tell you this because I didn't used to say this, but, but women would say, what about an abuse situation? I want you to know it's competing jurisdictions, jurisdictions that both have to be honored simultaneously. And if that, if that husband is dealing in drugs, all right, well, he's under the law of another jurisdiction, and that is going to require you to make some decisions. And you may have to remove, I didn't say divorce. I said you might have to remove yourself for safety's sake. Not to get even, not to use no words to pound his head into the ground, but to show loving surrender and yet protect those who are under your care. Does that make sense? I make that distinction because I failed to do it in the past and I've left the wrong impression. I think there's that balance. Now, you men, women, you might disagree with me, but 
I think that seems to explain from a biblical side how we can honor the principle and yet consider the other jurisdictions that are equally weighted in our life moment-by-moment existence. All right? Okay, I think we should stop. It's noon. All right? And uh, let me just see where I'm at. Yeah, we should stop there. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Wow. We said several words and were ushered into the throne room. I can see the angelic host part. I can see the throne room welcome. I can see the smile in your face. And I can see that you're bending your ear to this little dot on the planet and you're listening. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in this location of earth as it is in heaven. Oh, give us this day, O oh Lord, our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power, the glory, and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We give you our lives, Lord. The wisdom of God we see, it's extraordinary. Your ability to distill it down to the real raw data of, of, of spiritual truth, that's you. And all we want to do is we want to be like Mary. We want to be at your feet. And we want to say, say that one more time. I want to make sure I understood it in its full dimension. That's us. Oh, God Almighty, I pray for our assembly world. You, you, you've known us. We've been various levels of pride and arrogance. and You know, my own stubborn heart to obey and my, my flirtations with the nature of sin. You know all that. I just want to thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ has always freshly applied to my life. In Jesus' name, amen.